Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Silva Screeners. My name is Frank, coming your way from Massachusetts with a continuation of this limited series of Oscar-themed episodes to get you primed and ready for Hollywood's big night on Sunday the 27th of March. We're talking, of course, about the annual Academy Awards, the ceremony where an organization composed of over 9,300 voting members decide who gets to receive an eight-and-a-half-pound statuette that's a little over a foot tall in front of colleagues in the industry, and proceed to thank everyone from their parents to their agents to the cast and crew to the studio heads to their pet chihuahuas with names like Ginger Snap. This episode marks the 8th in this limited series as we get closer to this year's telecast. We've been looking at Best Picture winners and nominees from the past 45 years, starting with 1976, and with each episode leapfrogging in five-year increments. And if you happen to be unfamiliar with any movie that this show has been taking a closer look at, especially those that may have been around for a while and seem dated, instead of saying to yourself, Damn, old movies? No! Just remember what actress Lauren Bacall once said, It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. In each episode, we look at the Best Picture winner and one of its co-nominees, the weekly polls that I put up on my socials, the public Facebook group Silver Screeners, same name as this podcast, easy enough to remember, as well as Twitter, at FilmBuff1974, Instagram, at FrankMendoza1974, and email, at SilverScreenersPod, at gmail.com. These weekly polls give you the chance to cast your vote for which non-winning Best Picture nominee you want to hear about the most. But for this episode, number 42, we plop ourselves in 2006 with a focused look at the Best Picture winner from that year, Martin Scorsese's The Departed. So rewind 15 years back to early 2007 as the 06 Oscar season launched. Get pumped for round two of a Scorsese film on this podcast that entered the Oscar arena, first being Taxi Driver. I'm pumped. Joining me today on Silver Screeners to talk about The Departed is a very special guest, Chris from the movie podcast, The Movie Psycho. We first crossed paths over the Good Pods platform. We've been in touch with each other ever since. As with my previous guest, Davey A., from the podcast I'd Give That 10 Minutes, when he and I looked at 2001's Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, I do want to point out that the conversation between Chris and me about The Departed is pre-recorded. We got together online earlier in February. But, as I say, I'd rather be talking with him than about him, so let me bring him on. Or more accurately, edit in the audio footage. I mean, who the hell are we kidding? And we'll get things going. It's a pleasure for me to officially welcome Chris to the show. Well, thank you so much, Frank. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I love the show. And I was honored when you asked me to come on. And I couldn't wait to talk to someone from Massachusetts about The Departed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I watched the movie last night, so it's probably still stuck in my head. (laughs) All the Mark Wahlberg stuff. Uh, but before we get going with the film that finally got Scorsese his best director Oscar, I want to give you the chance to talk a little bit about your podcast, what it's about. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I do a movie review podcast. I just do a little movie review podcast where I can dump my irreverent humor out and just talk about movies. I've been watching movies ever since I was a kid, been a big cinephile watching all the big movies like we talked about earlier from the 80s and all that fun stuff and the Star Wars movies. And everybody I know always asked me my opinion on movies. So I finally decided, you know what, I'll uh, burden the rest of society with my opinions on movies and do a podcast. So I try to keep it light and fun. I don't get too political like some of the other ones out there. I just like to talk about movies and have fun with it. And it's on all the podcast services, Apple Podcasts. You talked about good pods. I like that app very much. Uh, It seems like I find a lot of good podcasts like yours on it. That's pretty much my show. <laughs> no, and, and I love the I love the tone of your show. Like you said, you know, irreverent humor. You just keep it light and fun, and that's for me. That's what 
that's what movies should be. They should be a lot of fun to go out and watch. And then when you have your buddies around or family, you just talk about movies and laugh and joke about the stupid ones that you saw or have a big argument about which Scorsese movie should have won the Oscar. Yeah, that's a loaded cannon, that one right there. <laughs> In a good way. Exactly. So, listeners, everyone listening, I want to play fair with you so that I don't live up to the stereotype of the so-called mass hole, as it were. Friendly <laughs> heads up that if you have not seen The Departed, then there could very well be spoilers ahead. If you do not want spoilers just yet, then go watch the film at your convenience. But don't forget to come back and give this a listen as well. After all, we want to see how your thoughts and reactions compare to, compare to Chris's and mine. And with that said, Chris, you ready? We can just dive right in. All right. Yeah, like I said, I watched it again last night. Damn, it's still a good movie. I will, <laughs> I will say watching it again, I still think, uh, how did he not win for Goodfellas, but he won for Departed? But that's neither here nor there. But it was a lot of fun to watch it. Uh, it's such a good plot. Um, and I love how it parallels between Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio. And um, Scorsese does a really good job of sort of showing how they're really running the same kind of life, just on different sides of it, where you have uh, DiCaprio as the cop who's undercover with bad guys with Jack Nicholson and all that. And then you have Matt Damon, who's basically an undercover bad guy working with the police. And it's just really cool how they twist back and forth like that. You have these two guys. Yeah, like you said, they, they, their lives are much more parallel than you would think. They're just, you know, it looks like they're both on opposite sides of the same coin. Exactly. And then they shared the same girl. Uh, what was her name? Vera Farmiga. I think that's the actress's name. Yeah, I yeah. can't remember any of the characters' names. I apologize about that. Because um, they're, they're all such big, famous actors in the movie. That's all I can relate to is that that's the actor in it. But yeah, it's neat how they share the same girl and they have the same sort of emotional conversations with her that show you more about their characters. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, which was a really quick scene, is when Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio, they first graduate from the police academy and they go in and they talk to Martin Sheen and Mark Wahlberg. And Mark, Mark Wahlberg is just busting their balls the whole time and then it's really cool how uh, Scorsese does it because he films it kind of from above where Matt Damon walks out and you see Leonardo's just sitting in the waiting room and they just pass each other for that instant and it's just so cool because you know the rest of the movie how back and forth their lives are between each other and how important they are to each other and they just had that little moment at the beginning I just thought it was really cool how Scorsese did that. Scorsese is good, I think, for putting together two characters who they seem to be diametrically opposed, but like visually, just like like you said, when he walks out of the room, there he is in the waiting room. And then at the end, you know, when they cross paths that one final time, I don't know how to word it's not it's not the two of them happy to see each other necessarily, but it's a sense of we're in this together, even though we both know that we're out to get each other. There's like exactly. a twisted kind of a twisted kind of camaraderie, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And that, and as an audience, we know why these two oppose each other, but they almost don't know why they oppose each other. And so we're kind of in on it a little before they are, which is really cool. Yeah. And Scorsese, another thing that he always does in these kind of movies, these gangster movies, is he makes these characters that normally you would think were be very unlikable or almost repulsive. I mean, Jack Nicholson, as a person, in if he was in the real world, he would be like, oh my God, that guy's the worst. Of course, he was what, Whitey Bulger in real life, but at yeah. least that was the uh, influence on the character. But he's kind of like you kind of like him and you like the gangsters that are with him. And the same thing with the police officers. Like I said, Mark Wahlberg, he kind of steals his scenes, but he's such an asshole. But he's likable because he makes you laugh the whole time while he's just busting everybody's chops the whole movie. 
Well, that's just it. You, the stuff that comes out of his mouth and you're laughing and you're saying, this, <laughs> I'm a horrible person for laughing. <laughs> exactly. Caprio about his relative or his uncle who just died, whoever it was who just died. And it's like, dude, that's just some. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, he got shot. And then he's like, wait, well, yeah, I was at the funeral. And he goes, was it a closed casket? I was just laughing my ass off about that. <laughs> like, what a horrible thing to say to somebody about their family member dying. But it was so, like you said, it's so funny, but you're laughing. And at the same time in your head, you're like, God, I'm an awful person for laughing at this. So maybe that's why he's so good at it, because it kind of makes you relate to those characters. You know, it kind of touches that little evil side. Some of us have. I don't know about you mass holes, but <laughs> in the South, we have it. We just we hold it inside. <laughs> <laughs> now, in fact, all you have to do is just take a look at the beginning of the film, really. Uh, the film opens up with that grainy footage of all yes. of those, those riots in Boston over the decades, over the generations. Exactly. And you got the uh, narration by Jack. And then I like really early on, up to the point, I think, where they graduate from the police academy, especially the Matt Damon character. Every time you see Frank Costello, who I saw in the trivia was weird. He Frank Costello was a real gangster in New York some many years ago I'm, I'm thinking back maybe in the 30s or whatever but then like i said earlier they based this character on whitey bulger who was a gangster in the 70s and 80s but anyway i like every time they show jack in the early scenes before they graduate he's always in the shadows and he's just doling out sort of this life lessons to young yeah. matt damon's character but he's always in the shadows, and then he finally appears and it's like oh there he is scary as hell you know kind of like the joker back when he played the joker well, you can hear the evil in his voice in the voiceover when he's saying at the beginning, in this world, you have to take what you want. The world's not going to give it to you. Exactly. And Matt Damon pretty much follows that throughout the whole movie. He's taking advantage of what he can to get ahead with the police department, even if it is working with Frank to get ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't I, I think I missed something here at the beginning when Matt Damon graduates from the police academy and then he gets into the back seat. Frank Costello gives him a gift and says, you earned it. You're done with school. No more pencils, no more books. Right. Did we find out what that gift was? Because you, in that scene, you never see it. He opens up this box and Damon looks up and he says, thank you. And then cut to Jack looking at him from the front seat saying you earned it. And then end of scene. Yeah, I don't ever remember seeing it. It's kind of like the, what is the briefcase in Pulp Fiction? You never really know what's in it. You just kind of mm. use your imagination. I always just assumed it was cash, but it could be anything. Like you said, it could be anything. Well, you mentioned that, uh, you know, one of your favorite scenes. Probably one of my favorite scenes, if I have to be honest, is the scene where Madeline, Vera Famigo, when she moves in with him and his phone rings. And yeah. Call. Yeah. Costello, but he's talking with one of those. I don't know what those things are called, but she assumes it's somebody who with a voice box. Yeah, what? I know what you're saying. Yeah. And uh, so he takes a call in the other room, and you know he comes back in, and she says, "You have a boss with a laryngectomy," and he says, <laughs> "He says, you know, he said, hey, don't worry about it. You know, you don't need to know about my job. There are certain parts of my job you don't want to know about. I don't want you to jeopardize an ongoing investigation. I don't want you to jeopardize your own life." And she's looking at him, and he's looking at her, and it's it's. He's trying his best to be playful with her. Right, exactly. Because earlier on when they're dating, it's a very playful relationship. You know, when they're at the restaurant and he's giving her back and forth, telling her um, something that Freud said about the Irish, that you can't do any therapy on the Irish or something like that. So it's very playful. And then once that phone call hits, all of a sudden that whole relationship changes. 
And I think that's probably why it is one of my favorite scenes is because, the, well, first of all, because of the acting. I mean, verify Amiga. I mean, she's yeah. she's great in everything she does. You yeah, have series Bates Motel or the Conjuring movies. Or, oh, yes. You know, up in the air. I mean, she's just, she's great. So the two of them, they play off each other really well in the scene because you can see it in his eyes that he's, you can tell he's lying and you can tell he's trying to cover up, you know, he's trying to be convincing. And you can see it in her eyes that she's not quite, sold but she's not allowing herself to right exactly and And she's already made that commitment to be in the relationship with him and it's like oh shit what do i do now (laughs) yeah it gives a whole narrative this dramatic thrust that i think separates it from you know just a mindless high octane ass-kicking action thriller it's like right give me a story that i can get emotionally invested in with characters who actually have some dimension to them and i think that's what sets scorsese stuff apart from a lot of other thrillers that are out there that just rely really on the explosions and the the eye candy and all that fun stuff. The eye can- yeah, the eye candy stuff and yeah, the nudity, the sex and the, the gun fights and okay, yeah, maybe visually it's fun, but where's the story? And I think Scorsese always cares about the story. Exactly. That, that that's what and, I, and as I watched it again, last night, like I said, it had been a while since I watched it. So I refreshed myself with it. And I thought that like, and I made the joke earlier, how did he win an Oscar for this instead of Goodfellas? But like you said, as a movie, if you just watched this movie and you didn't know it was Martin Scorsese, or if you, like you said, you put it in a different director's hands, suddenly it sort of goes from this A plus movie to maybe a B or a C plus movie. Like you said, they don't have those character moments or they don't have the slow moments to where you get invested in Leonardo's character or Matt Damon's character or anything like that. Even Jack Nicholson's character, Frank, he has moments where you kind of see the human side of him. Uh, like you said, another director would just cut all that stuff out and just go high octane, give us a 90 minute movie and, there you go. Let's get your money and get out of the theater real fast. <laughs> and it was just neat as I was watching it. But I will say the one thing I thought about after the movie ended, and I understand, like you said, it was important for the characters. And I think that's the only reason that she's in it. But if you think about the movie itself, outside of her character being in it to give you those emotional moments, she doesn't really add much to the movie, if that makes sense. No, absolutely not. I agree with you there. Yeah, it's all it's, it's I don't want to say it's an extraneous character. But yeah, it's right on the border of that. It's it's you kind of can tell that's why she's there to give you those emotional moments. And they're important. And that's what, like I said, it elevated, like you said as well, it elevates the movie. But at the end of the movie, you're kind of like, well, did she really even do anything other than give us those moments with the characters to advance the movie? If you'd have taken her out, yeah, it would have been a lesser movie, but it still wouldn't have changed the main movie. That makes sense? Yeah, it wouldn't have affected the way that the story unfolded. Right. like you said, I think it brings dimension to it, which, you know, only enhances it and makes it better. But without her, the story still could have functioned probably at a more basic level. Right. So, but like you said, she did such a mean, the whole cast, I mean, top to bottom, I don't, well, but Scorsese is always good. At that. He can take anybody, he probably take me and you and we would look good in the movie. <laughs> it will happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's funny because you think about the cast and uh, that's actually one of the that's actually one of the behind the scenes facts that I have here is a whole list of casting could have been people who were originally considered or people who were offered roles and turned them down. And Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt was originally going to play one of the two leads, but then he decided, you know what, I think I'm a little too old for these characters. So he agreed to serve as the producer instead. Right. I think one of the other ones was going to be Tom Cruise, wasn't it? That I did not know. I might have to check my phone. But <laughs> Tom Cruise, wow. I think age-wise, he was a little too old for that role. 
But uh, the one casting could have been that I was interested in was Scorsese actually wanted Al Pacino for the Jack Nicholson role. Right, right, right. Which kind of blew my mind in two ways. I started thinking about, well, what would Pacino bring differently to the role? Would it have been, all right, I know Pacino can go over the top, but I think maybe in a Scorsese movie, he might have been more subdued with it than Jack would have been. And then the other thing I thought about was in the, what I read about it was that up to that point, up to the Irishman, Scorsese had never done a movie with Pacino. And that kind of blew my mind because I thought for sure he had done one earlier in his career with him, but nope, he had never done. Cause you know, he's always with De Niro. De Niro and Pacino kind of always go together for me. So that you think about movies like, yeah, like heat. And I mean, it's, it's, you think about, especially back in the seventies, all of the earliest stuff that Scorsese did, you think about the names, De Niro, Pacino, you know, you think the Godfather, you think about, uh, you know, names like Dustin Hoffman and they all sort of, become this amalgam of one huge ass movie from the 1970s that everybody in the world <laughs> yeah. of course they all worked with each other before <laughs> exactly of course as he wanted to do a movie with al pacino for decades but it never happened and so when pacino turned this down it's like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> i think it would have been interesting to see his take on um i like nicholson in the movie because obviously he's jack nicholson but there are some scenes where he gets a little weird and I don't know if that was intentional on his part. Like um, there's the scene where he's in the bar after they collect the social security numbers and all that. And they want that. So uh, Matt Damon can try to find the rat. Yeah. And um, if you remember right, Leonardo leaves, they tell him to stay there, but he leaves. He's like, I'm not staying. He leaves. Well, then later on he meets Frank in the bar and he's kind of, they've got that real, it's a really great scene because it's just the tension. And if I could just jump off on the side here that uh, Leonardo just through the whole movie, you just feel like he's about to implode at any second from all the pressure on him. <laughs> and that whole scene, you're like, oh my God, is this kid going to hold it together? But anyway, so they're having the back and forth where Jack's kind of making him think, well, I think it's you. And of course, Leonardo's like, no, it's not me, not me. And then Jack sort of leaves the table to leave. And then he sneaks up behind him while, uh, Leonardo's talking to Mr. French and like Jack's like telling Mr. French pretend like he's not back there. And then he's like leans into the table and picks something up. It was just really weird how he did that. I'm like, why does he do something like that? I think, I mean, this is just personal opinion. I don't think Jack Nicholson in real life is the most stable Mabel. <laughs> well, he did go through the counterculture in the sixties. So <laughs> Doing movies like uh, Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces. And <laughs> All the recreational activities that came along with those movies. I'm sure they have played a part in it, but it was just really what, and it did add to his character because you never really know. I mean, he's kind of a loose cannon in different parts of it, but that scene always felt like it was really intense. And then Jack would do something silly and you're like, I don't know about that. But that's, that's just my ego as a podcaster telling Jack Nicholson how to play a part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's the right of every movie goer to have opinions like that. Okay, this is going to sound really narcissistic, but if it weren't for us, they wouldn't have careers. So That's the truth. That's the truth. <laughs> when a celebrity says, I always appreciate my fans, it's like, yeah, I can get on board with that. When they have a reputation for being rude or dismissive or even mocking, it's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> but Jack Nicholson, he's, um, yeah, I mean, obviously that's, that's his bread and butter to be so over the top, you know, 
Joker and uh, you know, The Shining, One Flew Over the Cuckoo. Exactly. Well, that's the reason why Stephen King was not nuts about his performance in The Shining. Yes, because he wanted more subdued. Yeah, he wanted subdued. You know, he just felt he was way too flamboyant and theatrical and campy, really. Yeah, but he sort of walks that line in this movie. It's like there's scenes where he's intense or he's he's really giving it his all, and then, like I said, with that scene, he does something weird at the end, and you're like, oh, okay, Jack, sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Nicholson doing something weird. Yeah, exactly. I will say um, another piece of trivia that I read was that uh, Nicholson, as you know, being a Massachusetts man, and I grew up a Boston Celtics fan, believe it or not. Um, really? But he, yeah, but he was a, you know, he's a, he's a big Lakers fan. So apparently in the movie, they wanted him to wear a Boston Red Sox baseball cap, but he wouldn't do it because as a Laker fan, I guess he hates Boston. <laughs> so, he wears a, so he wears a New York Yankees hat. But I was like, I don't know how to feel about that. As a sports fan myself, I'm kind of like, yeah, you stick with your team. But <laughs> as someone for saying, you know, you're an actor, kind of you can put that aside. Nobody's going to go, oh, my God, he must be a Boston Red Sox fan because he's in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not playing Jack Nicholson. You're playing Frank Costello. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, and I probably should have looked this up, but I think do you remember that movie I think it was Gone Girl with Ben Affleck. Oh, yeah. 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 In that movie, they wanted him to wear a New York Yankees hat, but he's a Boston Red Sox fan and he wouldn't do it, but he wore a Mets hat. <laughs> like I said, that's always a double-edged sword for me because as a sports fan, I understand. I completely understand not wanting to wear someone else's, your, you know, your enemy's gear. But as an actor, come on, let it go. That'll be the only time Ben Affleck and Jack Nicholson will be compared as actors in the history of the universe. <laughs> And Ben Affleck, I think, <laughs> I think a lot of the, his career decisions earlier in his career, I think, hurt him. I don't think he's honestly, I don't think he's the worst actor in the world. I don't think that he's consistent. But I do feel like, for example, I think that uh, back in 2012, Ago. Yes, sir. I like that movie. That was probably, I think, one of his strongest performances. Right. Because he wasn't playing, he wasn't trying to be. Movie star. Awesome, you know, or Mr. You know, movie star matinee idol. You, know, you think about some of his earliest stuff like Armageddon, where it was like, how many scenes can we have him be in a white skin type, soaking wet? And then exactly. Then the romantic stuff that he did, you know, bounce with Gwyneth Paltrow. And, but some of his, I, I think that, I do think that some of his more dramatic stuff, again, inconsistently, I'm not saying he's the world's finest actor by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that he's got more in him than I think Hollywood gives him credit for. Yeah. You see Hollywood. Yeah. With uh, Adrian Brody, where he plays, he plays George. Yeah, yeah, that was a good movie. Yeah, that's another one that he did a really fine job at. You can kind of tell he was dealing with the whole typecasting, like George Reeves went through. He really, he really sold that in that movie. I like that movie a lot. Yeah. Like I said, he does some movies really great. Some I know he's just like, I'll take a paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Jack Nicholson honestly is the same way. I mean, there are times when he plays roles where his persona just fits like a glove. And then there are other times where it's like you're in a different movie from everybody yeah. else. Exactly. And the really cool thing, we can tie all of this back together because everyone's like, why Ben Affleck? <laughs> are we talking about them? But <laughs> I can say the same thing about his buddy, Matt Damon. Matt Damon's kind of like that. And in this movie, he gives an excellent performance. Again, we all kind of know that from the Scorsese movie, but he's one of those actors like Ben Affleck where he can do one movie and you think, man, he's a really good actor. And then the next two or three, you see him and you're like, 
guy's just a plank of wood up there. <laughs> well, I do have. I tied it all back together. <laughs> I do have one question for you. That all right. Not to put you on the spot. No, put me on the spot. Scorsese, do you have a favorite picture of his? I would say Goodfellas. I'm a Goodfellas fan. Okay, because you mentioned a couple of minutes ago how the Depata got him the Oscar when it should have been Goodfellas or it should have been something else. So I was just curious as to what you would have, what, what, what film would you have given him the Oscar for? I think Goodfellas is absolutely amazing because as I mentioned earlier, how he can take characters that you in normal, even a normal movie, but we'll say in real world, you would absolutely hate these people. And through Goodfellas, you're absolutely engrossed in all of these gangsters and their lifestyle. And then he has a really great way of having it all catch up to people at the end. That's my favorite Scorsese movie, but I have been going back and watching a few of the older ones. I went and I rewatched Taxi Driver a couple of years ago. And that movie, oh, it's such a good movie, but damn, it's just a bleak movie. <laughs> oh my God. It's brutal, but it's brilliant. It is. And De Niro is absolutely amazing in it. <laughs> but but you get done with that movie and i think you said that in your uh, oscar review but you just you feel grimy and nasty and you're like but it's so engrossing you're just instantly in it and another one i watched and i hadn't seen it in a long time i watched it not too long ago it's on hulu the king of comedy another one with de niro i saw that yeah that's one of his less uh, remembered ones yeah that's that's a good movie just a weird movie it's one of those movies where you're like, it was like a Scorsese movie, but it kind of doesn't feel like a Scorsese movie. If that makes sense. It got all the hallmarks of it, but your the subject matter just feels kind of different from what he usually does, I guess. Well, and I remember flying the wall of the studio executive who heard the pitch of Scorsese wants to direct a movie with De Niro in it, where De Niro is playing a struggling stand-up comedian. It's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But he does an amazing job. That was sort of peak De Niro when he was in an early 80s movie where he's great. Uh, I remember I watched that one. And I don't know if you saw the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix. That was his name. I don't know if you watched that. Oh, yeah. But uh, it was amazing. After I watched The King of Comedy and knowing what I know about Taxi Driver, uh, it was just amazing how much the Joker borrowed from those movies <laughs> i was like dang that's from that and that's from that i was like okay well you got your money out of it but that's a good uh movie to try to emulate but but my favorite i would say is goodfellas and casino is pretty high up there as well oh right yeah we didn't mention casino yet well you think about this body of work i mean mean streets taxi driver king of comedy goodfellas casino you know the departed even hugo which i thought was pretty good Yes, that was the kids' movie, wasn't it? The big clock. Yeah, the yeah big... exactly. Yes, that was engrossing. I mean, the guy can make a good movie. I mean, he could he could take your home movies and make them a great movie. <laughs> well, you think about the fact that he only has one Oscar, and it's for this oh, one. It's and amazing, isn't it? But what I did in my head before we began recording, you know, before we began this, I went back and I said, okay, so he was nominated for director in this year and in that year and in that year. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so who won instead? So he was nominated for directing for Taxi Driver back in 76. Okay. John Avelson got it for directing Rocky. Okay. That was the feel-good movie of the year. Good movie. I mean, that was the bicentennial year, 1976. So, of course, you know, you have the... The hoopla around all that. Uh, making good, you know, the American dream, you know. So I can see why that would have been the flavor of the month. Yeah, like you said in your episode, 
the taxi driver is the exact opposite of Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, here is America this way. Here is America. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Academy pick. Yeah, exactly. So taxi driver, you know, went to Rocky. And then you think about Goodfellas, Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves. Okay. Raging Ball. And that was oh. Robert Redford for Ordinary People. I remember that. That movie's very depressing. <laughs> so, I mean, it fits the bill for being bleak and depressing, but... Yeah, exactly. So, when he... So, at this Academy Awards, when, you know, for The Departed, when they were about to announce Best Director, who walks onto the stage... I don't know if you watched the Oscars that yeah, year. I did, yeah. Spielberg, Lucas, and Coppola. The three yeah, of them. Exactly. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, if somebody else's name is in that envelope, then they really just... <laughs> yeah. Scorsese should just throw something at the stage and run out of the theater. <laughs> since, since they all came up together. Oh my God, had they announced anybody else, you know, I would have I would have rooted for them to just go up on the stage and say, I'll just take that. Yoink. <laughs> exactly. I know, and I did look to see what other movies were up for. The best picture was what? Uh, Babel, which I haven't seen. Well, that was a good one. Babel was, was it? Yeah, it was good. I mean, it was... It was depressing. It was it was bleak, but it was it was good. It was it was an ensemble, so it was a pretty big cast. And I mean, in terms of a story that you can really you know get engaged in, I would say that the pattern definitely has a leg up. Babel was a more uh, pensive movie, I guess you can say. Um, yeah, I had to look it up. I think Brad Pitt was in that one. Brad Pitt, Kate Blanchett, Kate Blanchett. Oh my God, I would watch her paint a wall. I mean, she's. She, <laughs> It's like, oh, is it a movie about her painting a room? Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, and I would be on my podcast telling you, go see that movie about her painting a wall. <laughs> uh, let's see, what else they had? Uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. Oh, right. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. And I remember that one because it kind of had a little controversy, right? Because that was, he did The Flags of Our Fathers, which was about the Marines on Iwo Jima. And then the letters from Iwo Jima. Wasn't that the, they sort of spun it where it was the Japanese military and they showed it from their point of view perspective yeah yeah it was basically it was the same not the same wasn't the same it was yeah it was two different viewpoints of the aftermath of the whole thing yeah all right i think i remember there being a little bit of controversy about that because you know in america <laughs> we only want to see our side of the story oh, all right. oh what else was there was a little miss sunshine which uh, that could not possibly beat martin scorsese no that was definitely a situation of the nomination was its award. Yeah. And I think the last one was The Queen, which I liked a lot. You did? Yeah. With yeah. Um, not the, Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've watched that. I just get engrossed in that movie. But you can kind of see why he would have won in that category with The Departed, because I would say that's the superior movie of the five listed, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, but then, like you said, if you stack it up, though, against his entire filmography. It, that's a, I wouldn't even, is it even in your top five Martin Scorsese movies? Probably, it's probably number six. Okay. Number six. Um, I would have to go with, if I had to pick my top five, uh, Taxi Driver is definitely in there. I would say Raging Bull is in there. Oh, yeah. Was definitely. And I probably, uh, I really, I, I really... Not because I think it's one of his best movies, but because it showed what he was capable of. I really like Mean Streets. Okay. That was made in 73. So it was earlier in his career. It was the first time he and De Niro worked together. And it wasn't my favorite of the bunch. But if you look at it through the lens of 
this is, you know, an up and coming director with an up and coming cast. And this was before De Niro got his Oscar for the second Godfather film. So it was, you saw all of the untapped potential. Yeah. What they were going to become. What they were going to become. So in that sense, I I have a deep appreciation for the mean streets. The King of Comedy was, that that was, like you said, it was quirky, which I It was. Yeah, it was. It just felt different, but it felt like a Scorsese movie. So it was just, you know, it was one of the movies where you're like, this is really good. I don't know why I'm enjoying it. Oh, yeah, it's a Martin Scorsese movie. Of course I'm enjoying it. (laughs) What would you say your top five would be of Scorsese? Oh, geez. Well, Goodfellas would be number one. I like Taxi Driver, so I'll put that at number two. I know I've just said how bleak and dark it is, but damn, it's so good. Um, Let's see. Casino, I like that movie a lot, so that'd be three. I like his gangster movies. What else? King of Comedy, I would put probably maybe number five. Okay. And what should I put at number four? Hell, I might put the part of the number five <laughs> when they're somewhere. But I know it's a step down from everything else. But it's still a great movie. I mean, you just get engrossed in everything about it and the performances that he pulls out of everybody. As I mentioned earlier, Leonardo is, he's one of those actors where he does a, <laughs> I've mentioned this in one of my podcasts, but he does a lot of shouting <laughs> in some of his movies where it's like, no, no, Leo, you don't have to shout your angry lines and stuff. But in this movie, it works because damn it, I swear from the start of the movie, you feel like he's just going to explode at any moment from all the pressure and all that. Um, and then um, we talked about Mark Wahlberg, uh, the scene where he just ripping in and then there's that one part where he just walks into the meeting with alec baldwin and just starts busting on alec baldwin and then walks out and you're like what the hell just happened Wahlberg, out of everybody he was the only one in the cast who was singled out for a oscar nomination yes best supporting oscar how about that um marky mark (laughs) what a funk i'm trying to think of who won it that year that would have been 2006 so best of oh that would have been um alan akin for a little miss sunshine who got it yeah I, I'll give it to that. Alan Arkin's great. Alan Arkin, he's a great actor. I, I like his stuff. <laughs> he's so uh, sarcastic and dry at the same time. I've never been able to look at the uh, KFC logo the same way again after seeing that. <laughs> exactly. Not the chicken. <laughs> okay, now I got to watch that one again. <laughs> no, I know it. I know it. We'll have to do a whole episode on that. But, um, I was going to, I had questions about the movie. You know, there was a scene and I know why they did it for tension, but, but I don't, did it ever have a payoff was when they were, um, the police were about to raid where they're selling the uh, microchips to the Chinese gangsters. Oh, right. Right. There's yeah. they're in the, the, I guess, observation area or whatever. And they got, remember the FBI is tracking all the phones that the gangsters are using. So Matt Damon text, Frank and tells him to, to everybody to turn their phone off. And the only person that leaves their phone on is Leonardo. And it's, I know the tension's there because you're looking at the little red dot on the screen and it's just Leonardo's phone. And, but I, I didn't understand what was supposed to happen with that. Were they going to track him to know that that's who the rat was or not? It was kind of confusing, if that makes sense. Did you get anything out of that? I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't get it. Okay. There are a few pieces of the plot that. I had to rewind and rewatch a scene or two and say, okay, so how does this fit in? That was one of them. Yeah. I thought there was going to be some payoff like, oh, okay. So now we know whose phone it is that was on. So we can 
figure out which guy it was or whatever. Yeah, I gift at the beginning that I mentioned earlier. It's like, okay, did I miss something? Did we find out in a later scene what that was that he gave him? And right. A lot that's left to the, I don't know if it was deliberately left to the imagination or if it was just convoluted storytelling. <laughs> yeah, it might have been a little bit of that. I also got confused at the end, a little bit confused. Uh, I mean, I understand from the story arc why they finished the movie the way they do. But right before they have the big scene in the elevator and all that, when Leonardo comes in from being undercover and Matt Damon's in the office, he's the in charge now. And Matt Damon knows that Leonardo's the guy, the mole, was the mole with Frank. But Leonardo doesn't know that Matt Damon was the mole at this point, correct? I don't think he did, no. Okay. Well, all Leonardo wanted was his money and to get his name back and then to get the hell out of it. Right. And part of me was like, well, why didn't Matt Damon just give him his money, give him his name, and get him the hell out of there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know something? All I had a perfectly legitimate question. I guess the best response that I have to it is the screenplay got the Oscar, so who the hell are we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like me telling Jack Nicholson to be a director or be a better actor in the scene. <laughs> yeah, I just I was watching it last night and I was like, you know, he's right there. You could have just said, here's your check. See you later. And then basically your loose ends would have been all tied up and nobody would ask anything because everybody was dead. You wouldn't have the awesome elevator scene that I remember the first time I saw that. It absolutely floored me. Yeah. Yeah. Because it happens just out of nowhere. You're like expecting some kind of amazing standoff and it's not. It's just the door opens and then boom. <laughs> and then the other two are shooting each other. I was like, oh, God, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was nuts. That was a pure classic Scorsese move. Yes. Yeah, he, he's good. Like, speaking of slow burns, I, th I think that was a, even though it was late in the film, even though it was a little, uh, you know, it may have felt out of place. It really wasn't. You, you can you can have a slow burn building up to a climax. And I think that's what, I think that's what yes. he was. I think that's, his, I think that's one of his trademarks, to be honest. Yes, that's true. Plus the scene, the way it plays out, it's sort of, I know the, the new term everybody likes to use is subvert your expectations. But because this is sort of that, like you said, thriller action, and you've seen so many movies like this, you kind of think, okay, Leonardo's done it. He's captured the guy and they're just going to walk out. And it just, <laughs> and there's no, like I said, there's no even clue of what's going to happen when they open that door. And then all of a sudden, bam, now Leonardo's dead. You're like, what the? <laughs> But I think it just it, it heightens the shock of that moment. I mean, not that it wasn't completely unexpected. I mean, you can kind of see it's the story going in that direction. But the way that it was executed, no pun intended, the way it was, <laughs> you know, it's like you, know, you might have expected Leo to die a different way. Maybe he would have died in a you know big shootout scene, or maybe he would have died, you know, in the presence of Martin Sheen or Wahlberg. You know, what it kind of reminded me of, to be honest with you, it kind of reminded me of something that the Coen brothers would do. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just that out of nowhere, sudden, I won't say subvert your expectations. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the term they love to use nowadays. <laughs> there was another movie that did that. I'm just going to go off on a tangent here. I don't remember this movie, To Live and Die in L.A. Did you ever see that? That's that's a... Not seen that, no. Okay, well, then I won't spoil it for you. But it kind of does something similar. Now, who directed that one? Or who was in it? That, I believe, was... No, that wasn't Michael Mann. That was, well, maybe it was. It was either Michael Mann or who's the fella that did the French Connection? Oh, William Friedkin. Uh, it was William Friedkin because they had this amazing chase in the L.A. on the freeway. And uh, the cops are getting chased by him and then they go backwards on the freeway. It was pretty cool. Um, 
that had William Peterson in it. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, yep, William Peterson. Yeah, and Willem, a young Willem Dafoe, who I absolutely love. He is an acting paragon. Yes, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> but, uh, and I can't remember who the other co-star was. But it was like a almost kind of Miami Vice feel to it because they're, there's, I think they're secret service agents and they're trying to bust Willem Dafoe, who is a uh, counterfeiter. And they go deep undercover and it's kind of got maybe a little score because it's really dirty, grimy undercover. It's not fancy or anything like that. But it had that cool look to it from the 80s. And like I said, it has a really badass car chase in it. But, but at the end, it it sort of does kind of what The Departed does. It, I don't want to give anything away. So if you watch it, you'll enjoy it. But something happens to a character and you're like, oh, what? Did that just happen? <laughs> well, I'm looking up to Live and Let Die in LA right now, and it's got a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb, so not too shabby. Yeah, it was a good movie. I'd recommend watching it. if you, Like I said, you like the Scorsese stuff, so I'm, I think you'd get a good kick out of it. I'll be putting it in my queue, definitely. Yes. There is uh, actually two. There are two last things that I want to be sure to mention. The first is that Scorsese said that the script reminded him of one of his favorite movies, which was a Jimmy Cagney film from the 40s, White Heat. Yep. And he said White Heat is... Have you seen White Heat? Oh, I probably have, but a long, long, long time ago. Isn't that the one with Top of the World, Ma? Is that White? Or is that Public Enemy? Oh, that might have been... Maybe I'm confusing the two then. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. All right. Uh, White Heat was about an undercover police officer who was teamed up with a a charismatic gangster. So that's says he agreed to direct The Departed because White Heat was one of his favorite movies. So there you go. And the second thing I wanted to mention was that there was a former Boston Police Department detective by the name of Tom Duffy, who served as the technical consultant on the film. And uh, during his time on active duty, he was actually assigned to the Whitey Bulger investigation. Okay. <laughs> so he had some insight. Nuts. And he has a cameo in the film. He plays the Massachusetts governor. Okay. But yeah, no, his name was Tom Duffy. And uh, to have somebody who was actually on the Whitey Bulger investigation be involved in a movie where Jack Nicholson is playing a character inspired by Whitey Bulger. Yeah. That's a good resource to have on set. I don't know if I would have been comfortable with that, to be honest. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I will say the movie has a much more satisfying ending to the Whitey Bulger saga than real life. <laughs> oh, my God. When was that? 2011, I think it was. When... <laughs> it wasn't. He was just an old man living out in Arizona or something. And they oh. picked him up. <laughs> it was the whole thing was just so. And I remember that, you know, all the news footage, all the coverage of my God, he's been found. And yeah. And but it wasn't anything. You know, when you have this myth. Right. <laughs> We have this legend of mythic proportions built up around, you know, the media builds up and the, the urban legends and the stories. And, you know, and, it, and especially when you have the element of mystery to it. I mean, it's not like he was someone who was gone for like a three day prison escape. I mean, we're talking decades of decades. Exactly. And when he's finally found, it just felt so. I think there were people who I'm not going to say that they wanted something more to it, but it was almost a sense of, oh, is that That's all? it? Yeah. yeah. It's like there was some kind of a, and then there was a shootout, but you know, <laughs> no one was injured and we found him. And but not, yeah, it was, it's just that old man bringing his groceries home or something like that. Wasn't he? <laughs> Did you ever see the uh, I know we're jumping all over the place here, and I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but the uh, Johnny Depp movie Black Mass, where he actually plays Whitey Bulger, 
Yes, I did. I saw that in the theater. What do you think about that? I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't think Johnny Depp was great in it. I thought that the movie itself was fascinating. I think the fact that I live in the Boston area probably had a hand in that. But also because the actress Julianne Nicholson, she's the one who he's in the um, that scene when he's in the upstairs bedroom with her and he sort of has her not pinned against the door, but he's got her physically. Right. I remember. Yeah. Not able to to get to leave the room. She actually went to my high school. She three years ahead of me. She was in my sister's class. So when I was watching this movie, I mean, yeah, I was getting involved in the story, but it was also, oh, so what scenes is she in now? And, you know, so I was distracted by that, to be honest with you. I thought it was a, I mean, it's a fascinating story, no matter how you cut it. Right. Disturbing story on so many different levels. Uh, It does bother me to the marrow of my bones, how children were affected by it. So I think the Hollywood treatment that it was given Probably the movie itself probably was as good of a film that could have been made of it. I'll word it that way. All right. I'm not convinced that Johnny Depp was the best choice for the role. Fair enough. That's that was when I saw it, it was one of those Johnny Depp roles where I was pleasantly surprised. I know he sort of had to have all the makeup and all that. I don't understand why every role he does, he has to have all the makeup and everything, but it seemed like he was actually acting in that movie instead of just being a weird dude teddy probably is <laughs> oh god yeah it was, it was good to see him in a movie not directed by tim burton yeah that too <laughs> a collaboration but it's nice to see something different every once in a while yeah but i was just curious how you felt about that one compared to or how it plays at least plays kind of into this movie since whitey bulger was the uh, influence for jack nicholson's character well i think that this is kind of is and kind of is not a tangent, but if we're talking about movies set in Boston, it's kind of like, I, I would say that Black Mass and The Departed are probably similar in vain if you were to compare Spotlight to Doubt. Okay, yeah. Uh, Spotlight, Michael Keaton and Mark Ruffalo, right. Rachel McAdams, based on the true story of you know the whole thing and you know depicting the Boston Globe investigative journalist team. And then you have Doubt, I don't know if you saw Doubt with Meryl Streep. I did see Doubt. And um, Amy Adams and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? Great Philip Seymour Hoffman, Viola Davis. And that was fiction. It dealt with the same issue from, right. from, the, you know, from the historical perspective, you know, the 1960s when people were aware but keeping quiet. It's kind of like that, I think. You know, when you have the true story being given the Hollywood treatment and then you're being given a work of fiction that's inspired by the true story. You know what I'm saying? It's right. hard to say which is the better approach to the material. I think that both the, the Departed and Black Mass, I think they're both really good in their own ways, but I don't know if I can put them in the same category. I mean, it's okay. the same genre, the same kind of idea, same type of story, but, and I'm not saying that Black Mass is a documentary by any means, but one's fiction, one's nonfiction, I think is yeah. what I'm trying to say. And what the fiction sort of gets you to separate from the reality of it. Right, right. And with the fiction, they can take the story in whatever direction they want to. Right, you know? and they can make a character look a little... Well, like I said, Scorsese is good at it. He makes characters that should be repulsive, makes you interested in them, and kind of likable. Whereas if you're watching Black Mass, you know that's the real person, and they're pretty much the worst thing that walked on Earth. Yeah, yeah. And you know, there was plenty of you know eyewitness testimony and stories that were all published in the papers and online, you know, when 
back in 2011, you know, when they did find him and you know, most of it, I wasn't aware of like the details I wasn't aware of. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, this is truly a despicable human being. Yeah. Human being. I'm going to call him a thing. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's like, so is he dead? Oh, okay. Well, I won't be getting any crocodile tears over that. <laughs> exactly. But, but back to the departed. <laughs> I was just curious what your take was on that. Uh, but here's another question for you as a, native of the area what what did you feel about all their accents who did uh, outside of mark Wahlberg? because i mean he's from the area so he doesn't count who's who's the really good one and who's the really bad one all right <laughs> i'll begin with matt damon who is from this area yes he is and i remember when i first saw goodwill hunting back in 97 my girlfriend and i at the time she's my wife now we went to go see it we came out of the theater we both, at the time, we both felt the same way about it. We looked at each other and said, yeah, good movie, but we just shook our heads and said, why did they exaggerate those accents as much as they did? It was just so forced. It was like, why, why did you do that? It's like, were you told to do that? Did, did Miramax say you have to do that? I, I, I don't know. He toned it down for this one. Damon, Matt, uh, Damon, Matt, Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah. Toned it down for this one, but... It still felt every once in a while, it just sort of, I don't know, it just sort of slipped. I don't know. Maybe I was just being too, maybe my antenna was just up too much. I don't know. I, I agree with you a little bit. I don't know much about the area there, but you could tell some of his stuff is good, which, like, like you said, is a bit weird because he's from that area. So you think he could just have a natural accent? Yeah, just talk the way you always talk as opposed right. to playing it up because some studio executive was saying to you, this is how we're going to, you know, market this thing. But as far as Leo goes, <laughs> okay, I have a, I'm not even going to call it a love-hate thing because I can never, I really cannot say that I ever truly love him as an actor, but I have this on-again, off-again thing with him. Leo, I know, is usually, at least for a while, he was always called, you know, one of the finest of his generation. There's good Leo and there's bad Leo. Yes, there is. <laughs> Titanic, bad Leo. What's eating Gilbert Grape? Good Leo. Revolutionary Road? Almost good Leo. <laughs> the Revenants? Desperate Leo. Give me that Oscar. Yeah. So this would have been back in 2015. He had just seen, student of mine had just seen The Revenant, and he turned to me and he said to me, have you seen The Revenant yet? And I said, oh, yeah, I saw it a couple of weekends ago. And he said, okay, what did you think of Leo DiCaprio? Because there was all the Oscar buzz around his performance. Is this going right. to be where he finally gets it? And this kid and I, we both agreed. He, he basically just sat there with fake snow and ice in his beard, whispered the whole movie, fought off a CGI bear, and that was it. Yep. <laughs> I can appreciate everything he did behind the scenes. I mean, I know the, how he ate the real raw liver and like all that stuff. But to me, it's like, did you really have to do that for the performance? Or is that... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's called <laughs> acting, Leo. <laughs> he was good. He's not good at accents. Um, just look at, look at Blood Diamond. I mean, he was supposed to be speaking with a South Africans yep. dialect, and it just did not it did not work. And I noticed this much like Blood Diamond, it it comes and goes. <laughs> yeah, and that <laughs> sometimes there's Leo, and then sometimes he's got an accent. I'm like, okay, Leo, pick pick one or the other. <laughs> now Jack Nicholson, to be fair, I don't think Jack Nicholson really gave a shit one way or the other. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think that was a pure that was a pure Sean Connery role right there, where Sean Connery is like, oh, I'm a Russian. Submarine cap? Nope, I'm gonna talk like I always talk. <laughs> I think Jack was just like that. He's like, I'm gonna be Jack, so you deal with it. 
not wearing the hat, not using the accents. And uh, who else was there? Um, Alec Baldwin. Well, all right. I'm, I'm going to give you just a, a blanket answer. I think if I had a rate on a scale from one to 10, everybody put together in aggregate, I would say that the accents probably came out like maybe a six out of 10. Certainly not as bad. Okay, you know what? I'll bump it up to a 6.5. I have seen a lot of, you know, quote unquote, Boston movies. And as far as the accents go, this was definitely not the bottom of the barrel. This was better than a lot. Okay. If I point out what I think is the bottom of the barrel, I'd probably go with Kevin Costner. Well, yeah. What was it? He, that was 13 days. Yes. Thank you. I was trying to think. It was the John F. Kennedy movie. Yeah. But that's Kevin Costner. So <laughs> he's not exactly a go to great actor. No, no, he's not. I just had an episode. In fact, it was my last episode and JFK was one of the movies in it. So he got himself a pretty hefty payday and he could have used that money for a couple of <laughs> workshops if he really cared for career longevity. But uh, we all know about his role as Robin Hood and his quote unquote British accent. <laughs> oh my God, bleach my eyes out now. Just bad. But uh, but yeah, no, I remember the beginning of 13 Days. I just remember that we all just burst into laughter because he makes a reference to uh, his son's report card. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm signing your report card. <laughs> oh, no, cut that out. But um, so yeah, no, I'd give the, I'd give the pad, I'd probably give it a 6.5 out of 10. But, all right. Yeah. I was always curious how the accents play. I know it's Living in the South, even though I don't think I have much of his accent, whenever I see someone that has a bad one, it's like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm feeling really generous. I mean, of course, I said six out of five, 6.5 now, but if I had to, maybe tomorrow morning I'll wake up and I'll say, man, maybe that was a little, maybe that was a little too harsh. Maybe a seven is good, but. You throw Wahlberg back in there and it bumps it up, right? It does bounce it up. <laughs> I think he said that uh, he based his performance on all the cops that arrested him when he was young. I was just about to say that. <laughs> as far as all of the facts that I had pulled together, uh, we didn't mention the fact that it's the remake of that Hong Kong movie, Infernal Affair. Yeah. Now, have you ever seen that? I have not. Have you? I, I can't think if I have. I remember going through my uh, John Woo phase with like Hard Boiled and all the Chow Yun fat movies. You remember those? And I think that kind of fell in there. So I don't know if I watched that sort of as a splinter off of the John Woo that I was into or not. I cannot remember at all. So I'm going to have to say no since I don't remember. Yeah, no, I have not seen that one either. Uh, I, I, I know for a fact that I have not seen that one. Okay. I feel like I haven't, but I cannot confirm nor deny. <laughs> if we're talking about the Boston Connection, the penthouse apartment that Damon's character has, the luxury up in the... Uh, right. That was actually the exterior shots. That was actually Suffolk University Law School on Tremont Street. Okay. So I'll, I'll take your word for that. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that most of the interior scenes throughout the movie, including, including that place, they were all shot on sets in New York City. All right. I guess it's a Boston movie in name, but not necessarily yeah. execution. But at any rate, oh, this has been fantastic. I am really glad that this worked out. Yes, sir. I've had a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on. And it's an honor, sir. An honor to be on your magnificent podcast. Wow. Hey, I appreciate it. <laughs> if you're I, listening, go give him five stars on whatever you're listening to it on. <laughs> and yours. Well, speaking of uh, podcasts, I want to make sure that you have the chance to 
if you have anything else you'd like to say about it or how people oh, sure you sure you can like i said it's the movie cycle podcast it's on all the major podcasting services um if you want to get in touch with me on social medias you can reach me let's see on instagram at the movie psycho twitter at psycho movie um i got a facebook movie dash psycho that you can go to but i never go on it <laughs> and i do have a website the moviepsycho.com and it has all the old back episodes and you can also get in touch with me through that but definitely please come listen to it no. i try my hardest to keep up with frank's quality work no <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you for that. But your show is your show is great. I've been I've been enjoying every single episode that I've been listening to, and I'm gonna keep listening. So I, I greatly appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up episode 42. And Chris, I mean this come back anytime. If there's a new release that you'd love to talk about or anything at all, looking back at a favorite of yours, this has been really this has been a lot of fun. And thank you to everyone listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button to Movie Psycho Podcast, as well as Silver Screeners, if you haven't already. I would be very grateful if you could rate or review either one of or both of our shows. Both of them. Definitely both of us. It is a great help in terms of boosting the visibility of the show, getting more people listening. Word of mouth is what it's all about. So thank you to everyone. And thanks again, Chris. My name is Frank. And until next time, keep on screening. I'll see you.